All right. Well done, all you party animals. It's hard to break you up. A big thank you to Annika, who is downstairs in her class, who under Rose's capable tutelage made all the snacks. Can we thank Annika so she, she can hear us? <laughs> Woo! Stomp on the floor a little bit. That's so awesome. Way to go. Thanks, everybody. Uh, lots of you have signed up so that we have kind of year-round a rotation of our snack team. That's great. That's lifting the load a lot. So if you still need a spot to fill, uh, talk to Kim. And I think there's uh, a, a few dates left in the year, but it's really filled up well. So thank you so much. So come on up, Daryl. Such a privilege. When we arrived at VEV, which was at the time Vancouver Vineyard in 1991, it had just been planted. It was about two years old. And um, Daryl and Carrie were on the, the leadership team and were part of just such an incredible welcome that we got, Kathleen and I and our children received at the time uh, and began our journey here in Vancouver uh, with the vineyard and with, with Vancouver, which became Vancouver Eastside Vineyards. And I always enjoyed Daryl's, um, everything that Daryl was involved in, but his teaching was Wonderful. You're going to find he's just got a wonderful mind that just connects so beautifully with his heart, with an amazing heart. And he's been with us to lower post numbers of times. Um, although sometimes he arrived several days ahead of us. He drove so fast. Did <laughs> 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 Jesus take the wheel? Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I want to just pray for them. Just a big welcome to you guys. And thank you so much for your heart for us. And coming to serve today. We just so appreciate that. So Lord, we open our hearts to receive from Daryl the gift that he is to us, the gifts that he brings to us. Lord, we take them as from you. We ask for just hearts that are soft and open to be able to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And we thank you for that in advance. In the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome, brother. I'll turn this over to you. All righty. Yeah, Gordy's introduction is way better than the one I get in Aldergrove. <laughs> when I preach at Aldergrove, Joe, Joe Kelder, the pastor there, who is the founding pastor here, he says, uh, okay, guys, this is Daryl. You don't have to believe anything he says. <laughs> So, uh, I'm going to say a whole bunch of controversial things today. That's my pattern. Um, I, th I figure if I, if I make you angry, you're going to, you're going to remember what I say. <laughs> my wife just hates this. <laughs> That's why she's downstairs. Okay. So, uh, my talk today is called The First Virtue, and I think the first virtue is loyalty which is kind of an unusual choice. And you could think about that during the day and say, well, wait a second, isn't it love? Isn't it kindness? Isn't it tolerance? Isn't it what, 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 what? I think it's loyalty. So, you ever read this to your kids, anybody? How I Met, <laughs> Are You My Mother? <laughs> I was thinking as I read the text about uh, how Jesus says in, later in, verse, in chapter 12, uh, who is my mother? And, and how annoying that is. Oh, I, 
need to push the button. This is, this is technology morning, okay? I should have pushed the button. All right, so Jesus says, who is my mother? And I thought, well, that's kind of like this book. Well, the little bird can't find his mom. Goes around, he's asking the cat, he's asking the dog, are you my mother, are you my mother? And then I was also thinking about this uh, beautiful movie. Do you guys remember this one called Fly Away Home? It's a beautiful Canadian film. There's, a, there's these, these geese and uh, they hatch uh, and the little girl becomes their mom because their, their, their mother isn't there. They all imprint on her. So they follow her around everywhere and then eventually she has to lead them south for the winter on her uh, ultralight. It's a beautiful movie. I recommend it. Fly away home. So, okay. There we go. So I wanted to tell you a story. This is the story of the beginning of the Vancouver Vineyard. The beginning of your church here which Carrie and I are so delighted to, to, to be a part of this morning. Oh, I'm going to get all teary, sorry. <laughs> but uh, uh, this, this goes back before the beginning of the Vancouver Vineyard, before, you know, that Joe and Charmaine moved into Vancouver, before, before any, any, any of this happened, before Gordy and Kathleen showed up. I was in Boulder, Colorado. That's a picture of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it, do you have, yes, you have it, okay. <laughs> Boulder, Colorado only looks like that for about 10 days of the year. The rest of the year, it's a desert. <laughs> but I was there, I was doing a master's degree in, in classics, and I was thinking about whether I was going to go on and be an academic and do a doctorate, and, and uh, I was praying, you know, God, what, what am I supposed to do, what am I supposed to do? And, and he spoke to me in the fall of 1985. He said, go. Just one word. It's, it's kind of like I don't, uh, why I don't like that Shack book. It's because God only speaks to me in one word. <laughs> one word at a time. And that, that book has all these words. Anyway, God said, go. And so, you know, what, what does that mean? You, 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 if you look through the New Testament, you will find that word prefaced in lots of places. Um, I, we were praying in the, in the spring because I really had to make a decision now. Am I going to University of Toronto to, uh, to do a doctorate or am I going to go back to Vancouver and do something else? Nobody knew what that was. And uh, we invited these friends to come and pray with us for a weekend. We, they actually agreed to fast and pray with us for a whole weekend. Some friends from Puerto Rico and some friends from New Jersey. And... Uh, and we gathered on the Sunday night. And my friend from Puerto Rico gave me this long prophecy, and it was so amazing. But one of the things he said is, God told you what to do. He told you that word, go. He said, you're going to be an evangelist and a pastor. Um, and then my, my, my other friend from New Jersey, she says, uh, I see a place. <laughs> no, I can't do it properly. <laughs> With rivers and forests and mountains. And it's by the ocean. And then her husband, Ke Kevin, he said, I see two letters. I see VV, Vancouver Vineyard. And then three years later, there, here we were, part of the Vancouver Vineyard. Uh, when Joe and Charmaine made the announcement, uh, you know, we want to start a church in Vancouver, they were in Langley. I, I, 
I phoned up the same afternoon and I said, you know, we're in. So I am officially the first member of this church. <laughs> but I belong to the tribe of Vineyard. Um, so many times I have been tempted to leave the Vineyard. Um, and, and, and God just rebukes me every time. This is your tribe. This is your tribe. So, loyalty, the first virtue. We get to read these incredibly difficult verses in Matthew. Did you guys, has anybody read this lately? <laughs> these are verses no one wants to preach about, okay? Except me, I really like them. <laughs> I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. And in, in Luke 10, in the Luke version of this, yeah, Jesus says, Go, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. And uh, my birthday falls on National Aboriginal Day. So every year I think about this verse, and I think about how the British came to this country like wolves among sheep. Wolves among sheep. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Oh, I should tell you, I, I decided to expand the, the section a little bit. We were supposed to start at verse 24. But, but if you start at verse 24, you've got a, a pronoun in there that doesn't have an antecedent for you grammarians. Okay? You know what a pronoun is? It's like he or she or it or they. Well, you've got a them in verse 26. And if you don't start from verse 16, you don't know what verse 26 means. So I thought, well, I'll start at verse 16. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. That you're, you're, you're going to be brought before these governors and kings with the purpose of being a witness. God has a plan to make you a witness. That's the, that's the reason this is going to happen. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, I, I, <laughs> the only times I've ever heard anybody talk about that verse, they did a horrible job. Because that is not a verse that says, don't prepare sermons. <laughs> And that's the only time I've ever heard anybody talk about that verse, is when they're using it to justify lousy sermon preparation. Okay, it is not a verse about sermon preparation. What is it about? It's about the specific context. You in front of a judge and a jury. Anybody been to court? Yeah, I, <laughs> I got in trouble because I didn't have insurance on my car and I didn't know it. And I, I went in to contest. Actually, I went in to plead. I was going to, I was going to bargain. Please reduce the sentence. I don't, I don't have $300. <laughs> and uh, I get in front of the judge, and I'm just shaking. It's like, this is so horrible. And I've got my, my, my spiel, you know, in my head. And, and she says, guilty or not guilty? How do you plead? And, and see, the, the cop didn't show up. So, you know, everybody was pleading not guilty. And I'm like, not guilty. <laughs> anyway, I lied. Anyway. But this is not a text to justify lousy sermon preparation. It's a text about what you do 
when you're in front of a judge. What you do. And you're, you are not supposed to prepare yourself. You're supposed to wait and see what God says to you. And that's why Stephen's sermon in, Ch in Acts chapter 7, anybody ever read that one? That sermon in chapter 7 is his great non sequitur. It doesn't have anything to do with the charges against him. It doesn't, have, it doesn't even flow logically. It's just this great big long... And the reason is because it's the Spirit of God speaking through him. And he didn't prep it. He didn't get ready to be martyred. He, had a, he just let the Spirit speak. So he's the example of uh, what you need to do. Now, I said this to my church, our church, a couple of weeks ago. We're going to need this first, folks. That's why I'm underlining it. We're going to need it. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Can you imagine this? Children will rebel against their parents. Okay, we can imagine that part. And have them put to death. Whoa! You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. That's the shrewd part. Remember shrewd as snakes? That's the shrewd part. If you know you're going to be persecuted in Vancouver, move to Chilliwack. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, you, you know, well, you know, it's actually comforting to me to know that maybe we're allowed to run away. Right? Right? I, I think. I think it's a comfort. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. Uh-oh, I'm probably way behind, aren't I? No, oh, you, you guys are catching up. Thank you. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has, be, has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So who's been called Beelzebul? Jesus, right? I, I was trying to think of a modern equivalent. I think it's kind of like those times when people start calling each other Hitler. You know, you saw it a lot in the presidential debate a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's like everybody's a Hitler. Oh, you're the Hitler. No, you're the Hitler. No, you're the Hitler. Right? No. Jesus gets called Beelzebul. That is the worst thing you can call him. Okay? It's another name for the devil. It means Lord of the Flies. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to call someone. And Jesus says, well, I get, I get called that, so what's going to happen to you? <laughs> so here's our, our, our pr pronoun that needs an antecedent. So do not be afraid of them. So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, my question about this verse is, is Jesus telling them to risk their lives deliberately? Is, you know, he says, I whisper it to you, but I want you to yell it from the roofs. Is he saying, hey, you know, put yourself at risk? And, and I'm not going to try and answer that. I just, I just wonder about it. Um, and I want you to note the emphasis on speaking. Jesus says, speak. 
He doesn't say, go buy swords. He doesn't say, you know, get your nuclear weapons ready. He says, your tool, your weapon is speech. And speech is about the weakest weapon in the world, right? You imagine a sword made out of bamboo. That's what we've got. Jesus says, I'm giving you this weapon. It's a weapon of weakness, speech. We're not authorized to fight back. We're only authorized to speak the truth. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, I like this phrase, your father's care. Now, you read it in the Greek. There's just this preposition, without, and then father. Without father. So, sparrows fall to the ground, and they don't do it without father. Now, it's kind of ambiguous in the Greek. Does he want to hold them up, or does he want to put them down? <laughs> but, but what it speaks to is the involvement of God in the world, in the creation. God is involved in everything. He's involved at the subatomic level. Right? I mean, modern-day physics shows us this. God is involved at the subatomic level. And he's involved in the cosmic level. He's involved in the way the planets move. And, and you know, this whole Big Bang thing. He's involved in all that. From the, from the tiniest, tiniest part of the world to the, to the largest. I mean, the, 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 the modern genetics is amazing. You know, just what, what can happen with a gene. God's involved in all this. I, I think it's interesting, too, that Jesus expects his disciples to know the cost of two sparrows. You guys ever gone to a superstore and found sparrows? <laughs> I was trying to think of a good equivalent, but, you know, two sparrows are sold for a penny, and he expects the disciples to know the price of two sparrows. So what do they do with sparrows? Are they, are they pets? They keep them in a cage somewhere? I don't think so. I think they eat them. Yeah, not much meat. So I think, you know, what you got to do is scrunch the head off, pull the feathers. I know, I know. Well, you love this part. <laughs> Gut the thing. Uh-oh, vegetarians. <laughs> My friend Leah's a vegetarian too. Oh, yeah. And then, and then you got to put, put that, you know, gut the carcass, get all the yucky parts out, and then stick it in the pot and let it boil all day. And then I figure you're going to add barley at the end, and you've got a soup. Now, can you imagine that that's a meal the disciples might have eaten? So are they rich people? No, I don't think so. I, th I think it's kind of like somebody who might know the best price of really cheap cat food. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because they're going to eat it. I think, I think that's kind of the equivalent. That's the only one I could come up with. I, I, I think it's important when we're reading the Bible, especially these parts to the disciples, say, what does Jesus expect a disciple to look like? Does he expect a disciple to look like a rich person? Or a disciple to look like a poor person? And here it is, just, 
just thrown out there. Oh, you guys all know the price of two sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, that is an amazingly personal statement, isn't it? Can you imagine a friend of yours saying that? Okay, you know, I got two Steves in front of me. This is great. But, but that Steve, if that Steve said to me, Daryl, if you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before God, wouldn't it sound a little pompous? <laughs> right? And this is exactly the thing that drives politicians, theologians, leaders crazy about Jesus. All the way through his life, all the way through history to the present day, this is what drives people crazy about Jesus. He's saying, it's all about me, guys. He's not saying it's about my teaching. He's not saying it's about the kingdom. He's saying, it's about me. It's about me. And in anyone else, that would be incredibly self-absorbed, wouldn't it? <laughs> and that, and that, is what, that is the distinction that drives people crazy about Christianity. Jesus says it's about me. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, those, those ones already have trouble, don't they? <laughs> and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. This is a, Jesus is quoting Micah chapter 7. It's interesting that Jesus knows, I think he knows the whole Old Testament by heart. Anybody here know one book by heart? Gordy probably does. He probably knows the whole Old Testament by heart. You test him sometime. <laughs> Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, we are used to reading that kind of stuff as if it were a metaphor, right? Pick up your cross, it's kind of a metaphor. Well, you know, God's going to be inconvenient sometimes, right? Pick up your cross. You know, lose your life. Well, you know, sometimes you just got to put God first and other, people, other things second. Okay, but it's not a metaphor here, is it? For Jesus, it's not a metaphor. He expects to go to a cross. He expects his disciples to go to a cross. He expects to die for real. And he expects his disciples to die for real. That's what the text says, I, I think. So, loyal to whom or what? And I got four ideas. Jesus versus religion. Jesus versus politics. <laughs> Jesus versus fashions. And Jesus versus uh, family. Of course, this last one's the hard one, isn't it? Right? We all nod our heads and say, yeah, family's the hard one. Family's a really hard one. 
And there's so much about family in that text, isn't there? Family, family, family. Daughters, mothers, sisters, brothers, daughter-in-laws. So Jesus versus religion. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Now, there is a, a word in there uh, that's translated local councils. It's sunedria. Now, sunedria is the plural of sunedrion. Sunedrion, when you see it in the New Testament, you think, oh, Sanhedrin. Okay, but you see it in the plural in this text, and you think, well, there's just only one Sanhedrin, right? There's only one Sanhedrin, so what are we going to do with this plural? So let's figure out what a Sanhedrin is. I got this off the internet. Uh, from the few incidental notices in the New Testament, oh, you guys are with me, good. We gather that it consisted of chief priests or the heads of 24 classes into which the priests were divided. Elders, men of age and experience, and scribes, lawyers, or those learned in the Jewish law. As a judicial body, the Sanhedrin constituted a supreme court to which belonged, in the first instance, the trial of false prophets, of the high priest and other priests, and also of a tribe fallen into idolatry. As an administrative council, it determined other important matters. So I'm trying to think. You see, Jesus in this whole text is kind of prophesying. He's looking into the future. I should have said this at the beginning. <laughs> I get it all mixed up. But he's prophesying. He sends out the 12. He says, you're going to go out into all these villages and, and speak the, the good news and heal people, et cetera, et cetera. And then when he gets to verse 16, he kind of pivots and starts talking about the distant future, I think. The, the further future, anyway. Not distant, but further. Um, and I, I, I think Jesus is talking about our time. I mean, not just our time, but, but, but the centuries. I think, I think this relates directly to where we are. So what, is this, what are the Sanhedrins of today? Well, I thought, mm, ecclesiastical courts. Okay, we've got Catholics have a, an ecclesiastical court. Anglicans do. I looked this up. I don't know all this stuff. <laughs> Orthodox churches, they've got an ecclesiastical court. Uh, Presbyterians do. The United Methodists. Uh, the Vineyard doesn't have one of these yet. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't take me to it. <laughs> anyway. Vineyard doesn't have one of these yet. But I was thinking, you know, probably in our culture, it's the Human Rights Tribunal. Isn't it? Isn't that where we get our most sanctimonious? Isn't, isn't that the quasi-legal religious authority of Canada? The Human Rights Tribunal. So, there's an idea I throw out to you. Jesus versus politics. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Now, I, you know, most of us don't know whether to laugh or cry at what's going on in the States, right? Right? Laugh or cry. I, you, you take your pick. But in Canada, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian. I want to talk about Canada. What do we do in Canada? I think our politics in Canada is, is so religious. And it's so 
anti-Christian that we don't even see it. Um, and it's on both sides. You know, I, I, I'm not a particular partisan of either, either side of the spectrum. But, but there's so much anti-God in our politics that, we, that we, we, don't even, we don't even see it. You can't really be loyal to a, a political party and be loyal to Jesus at the same time. You think that's true? Can't really. I, I, I believe that. You can't really be loyal to both at the same time. Now, here's my favorite verse. You will be hated by everyone because of me. <laughs> You'll be hated by everyone because of me. So are, are we going to be fashionable? I know some people long for the days when Christianity will be fashionable again. And people will fill the churches and they'll buy worship CDs. Oh, you don't do that anymore. You'll download worship songs and they'll, you know, YouTube will be full of Christian musicians. And, or, you know, we, we hope that we're going to be fashionable again someday, right? I don't think so. <laughs> And Jesus versus family. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Now that's pretty extreme family conflict, right? I don't know if you can go to a counselor for that. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, when, when you live in a cynical time, and we live in a very cynical time, don't we? People don't believe in God. They don't believe in politics, really, most of them. I think some, maybe some. But they don't really believe in very much. But when you live in a cynical time, what do people do? They say, oh, I got a beautiful baby. I got a beautiful baby. Oh, my beautiful, precious little one. You know, and I'm not being satirical here. I mean, people do. It's like, oh, this little one's so beautiful and precious. And, and then they start growing up, and they're so beautiful and precious. You know, I remember when my son was two years old, man, walking into, walking places with his hand in my hand. Right? That's what we do. We say, hey, I can't find meaning in anything else. I got to find meaning in this. I got to find meaning in this. And so family becomes the ultimate value of the cynical time. Right? Okay. So Jesus versus all these other things, but, but who's Jesus? <laughs> I, you, this is the part where you get angry with me. So Jesus is the great ticket dispenser, right? So you line up, and there's this really nice guy named Jesus, and if you want to go to heaven, you line up, and you get a ticket from him. Boom. Say the magic words. Boom. We got it. Settled. Done. Right? Isn't that a common view of Jesus? Now, I never put that crossly, but how about this one? Jesus, the great psychotherapist in the sky. He's going to make you feel good about everything. Everything, including all the bad things you've done. <laughs> Jesus is going to make you feel good. 
How about G this one? Jesus, the light side of the force. You know? Jesus isn't really a person to these folks. It, he's he's kind of like, well, he's the good principle, and which I to try to go with the good principle, right? Well, what does Jesus say about himself? He says, I'm the master and the teacher. Uh, Greek words are didaskalon and kurios. Kurios is the word that we use for Lord. And so, you know, when, when, they, say, when they say Lord in the New Testament, they, they use kurios. Okay? And didaskalon, I think, is a synonym, synonym for rabbi. And I'm partially doing that because I'm not sure that there's any other didaskalons in the New Testament besides rabbis. I mean, I don't know if they have elementary music teachers in <laughs> first century Greece. That's me, elementary music teacher. Um, this is what Jesus says. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant. And the word is slave, okay? It's doulos, slave, above his master. Curios, master, curios, lord. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. So, whoever Jesus is, he's got to be more than the great ticket dispenser, psychotherapist, light side of the force, doesn't he? He's got to be a Lord and a master. Whoever he is. Now, we have a problem in our, our time. Uh, and that is what this thing called a locus of authority. I went to hear this lecture by this guy. <laughs> His name's Sam Reimer. And I went because he had a Mennonite name. Okay, no, you guys don't know Mennonite names. But he had a Mennonite name, so I, I thought, I'm going to go listen to this guy who's teaching at Trinity Western. And uh, this was the, the title of his uh, talk. Religion in Canada Institute presents why Canadians aren't going to church and what that means for evangelical Christians in Canada. That was a good talk. It was interesting. Um, basically, his thesis is like this. He says, 50 years ago, the, the locus of authority, the place where you, you received authority from, the people who could tell you what to do, church was one of those. School was one of those. You know, you learned about life from school, from your teachers, principals. Uh, the government was one of these sources of authority. And he says what's going on now in our culture is all of that is shifted to the individual. So the individual decides this is who Jesus is. The individual decides this is what church means. This is what truth means. Uh, if I showed you a list of virtues... You don't have to believe me that loyalty is number one. You could choose any one you like. See what I mean? That, that's, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And, and what Sam Reimer said is that people don't go to church because they don't need church anymore. They don't want a locus of authority out there. They want it to be here. It's like, oh, we don't want you to tell us what to do. We don't want you to tell us what to think. Golly. Right? That's what he says. So, how do we decide who's the real Jesus? Now, we read the Apostles' Creed this morning. So glad we read it. I believe in the creeds. I, I surely do. Because the creeds are what connect us to the Christian, the Jesus-following community through the ages. You know, this is a second century. I think Gordy put it in his notes. It's second century. This goes back 
almost 2,000 years. People have been saying this. Now, what does it say? It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The only, one, the only thing I really want to point out about that is that whoever Jesus is, if your bottom line it isn't that he's a part of history, that there is an historical person named Jesus, you can't even talk about him. Right? And, that, and, and it's been, been the case for the last 150 years or so that you know, the academic world has said, oh, there's no real Jesus. So, so then you, you end up in all these debates that are really just, well, I like this and I like that and I like purple and I like green. You know? You, you know what I mean? It's like, who's your favorite color? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who's your favorite color? What's your favorite color? <laughs> My favorite color person is brown. Okay, I'm just going to say that right out loud. Anyway. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. Okay. You know, but Jesus has a place in history. He was born in a spe specific place. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He grew up in Galilee. He was an Israelite. He has a culture. He has a language. Now, he probably spoke three or four languages, but he has a language that he learned from his mummy. And he has a religion. He has, he has, he has this huge backdrop of the Old Testament. And you can't understand Jesus. You can't even start talking about him until, until you've accepted all that, I think. See, I had a friend who said, well, what about if Jesus was born in India? And, I, you know, and I've been puzzling about it for months. You know, Jesus was born in India, and, you know, nothing wrong with Indian. India. I love India. But, okay, so his Old Testament is what? The Bhagavad Gita? How does it, you know, I mean, what would his teaching be like if that was his culture? I, I, can't, I can't get my head around it. Because Jesus was a Jew, an Israelite. So, let me tell you what I think. There's two things you're going to do with Jesus. You're going to decide he's worth dying for. Or, door number two, you're going to decide he's big trouble. <laughs> right? He's either worth dying for or he's big trouble. And, and if, you ha if you don't see him as one of those two things, you haven't met the real Jesus. If he isn't worth dying for or big trouble, you haven't met the real Jesus. Because the thing is, I, I know that's a picture from the, the movie The Passion. Um, I don't, you know, some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. My wife can't watch it. It's too graphic. It's too horrible. She couldn't watch it. I, I watched it once, and I'm probably going to watch it again. I got a copy at home. But you see, the thing is, you don't do that to harmless old duffers. 
Do you? If somebody's harmless, you don't treat them that way. And whoever Jesus is, he is a powerful, confrontational person. He's not easy to get along with. He is not nice. He's not very Canadian. <laughs> you know? Whoever Jesus is, you've got you to be able to explain how he ended up like that. Serious. All right, let's go back to the family quick. I want to just talk about this because I think this is what the Spirit is saying to us today. We read this passage in Genesis. Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael could live under your blessing. I don't need another son. I got a beautiful little boy. God, don't make me send him away into the desert. Can you imagine that? I have a beautiful little boy. God, don't make me send him away into the desert. I, I have a little boy. I have one. One precious boy. Now he's 25 now, so he's not really a boy anymore. But the idea of sending him, sending him off into the desert? I don't think you can ask anything greater of a father to say, send him out into the desert. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Oh, no, sorry, I'm going to skip you a couple there. Because it concerned his son, it distressed him greatly. Had to make a choice. Am I going to listen to God or am I going to, going to do this? You know, listen to God or am I going to keep my son? Right? See, the thing is, Abraham, he, uh, he doesn't do it just once. He has to do it twice. Right? First with little Ishmael, and then he has to take Isaac up on the mountain and, you know, pull a knife on him. He has to do that twice. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine how he, how he did it. But you remember how those stories end? Right? We read the ending earlier for, for Ishmael. God provided for him. God provided for him. Made him into a great nation. And in the end, God provided for, for Isaac, right? He sent, he sent the, the lamb, the sheep, so that, or the ram, I'm sorry, it's a ram, that, uh, that Abraham could sacrifice in his place. I was thinking about Jesus. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, I don't know that there's any relationship where you feel a greater sense of obligation than to your mother as a son, right? <laughs> right? As a son, that is the re relationship that you feel the greatest obligation, I think. Uh, and, you know, I think that's true for every culture. Every culture. I, I, I have a, a friend who's Chinese, and, you know, and he looked after his mom for years, so, and it was hard. 
Um, and, and, and I could see it in him. It's like, I'm, I'm her son. I have to do that. And Jesus says, who is my mother? She comes to see him and he says, who is my mother? And then we see him on the cross. On the cross. And it's practically his last breath. He says, he looks at his mom, he says, uh, there's your son. And he's looking. Yeah, you know, he has to do all this with his eyes, right? Woman. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. I can't get over the way he talks to her. Woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. Has to do it all with his eyes. Now, I think there's something very powerful and important a very powerful and important promise for us who are family people who love our families, love our little boys and girls, love our parents. And that is if we truly honor Jesus first, God gives us our children back. Do you, is this room shaking? Or is it just me? Ah, it's the shade, it's the kids. Good timing, kids. <laughs> it's the kids. I was, I was thinking as I was preparing this about Gordy and Kathleen, about your family. And how, how moved I am when I see Christian on there, on Facebook. And how God's redeemed him. And how God's brought your kids back from Switzerland. That barbaric place. <laughs> you know? And that you get to, to be here with your grandchildren. And you guys all know, you, you Eastsiders, you know how much Gordy and Kathleen love their grandchildren. Right? And isn't it, isn't it wonderful that God brought them here? Brought them back? That, 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 you know, Gordy's granddaughter is lighting candles and people are baking things. and That was your granddaughter, wasn't it? Okay, not Annika. I got that confused. Okay, <laughs> I got that confused. I, I'm learning to check on these things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just think, I just think it's amazing. And, and that is what God does. That is what he does. You say, I'm going to put God first. I'm going to keep serving in East Vancouver. I'm going to do everything in my power for the kingdom. And then he gives you your kids back. And, and I'm, I'm hoping for that too, that I get to see my kids in the future. Now, they still live in Vancouver, but they're planning to move away. So anyway, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I sense that there are people here whose families are broken. I sense there are people here whose families are broken, Lord. And Lord, I, what I say isn't going to make a difference, but what you put in their hearts, the word you speak into their hearts, 
even if it's just one word at a time, that can make a difference. So, Father, I ask you to touch each heart here, speak into each heart your promise, your promise that, that you will supply a ram and they will get to have their little one. You will supply the ram and they will get to have their little one. That you will bring water out of the desert to take care of their children. You'll bring water out of the desert, Lord. Put it deep in our hearts, Lord. We trust you with our families. We want to serve you first. Amen.